just uh, just before we kind of like launch into something else, because I'm kind of very aware that what I'm about to do is launch into something else. I kind of just really recognize what was said this morning, shared by Donna, uh, some of those things, and for some people here, that really resonated, and there's a sense in which if I just launch into what I'm going to share now, that might be lost. And for some people, actually, it would be just fine to close the service now. And so I'm just going to give a wee bit of space for a moment, uh, just for you to pray in response to some of the words we've sang and just some of the thoughts that Donna's encouraged us to, to, to go with. And just aware that I, I don't know, I sit here, I don't know who stood, if anybody stood, who's gone through a dark time and whether somebody stood with them. But rather, as I say, than me just launch into something else, I just want to give you a moment to pray for those who did stand or for those who wanted to stand, but for whatever reason couldn't. So take a moment. Just pray for someone. For yourself, if need be. So, Father, I commit each person to you this morning. And I ask that I will not get in the way of kind of what you've already been saying into some people's lives this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a a Bible, can you please turn to Matthew chapter 7? It's page 971. In the Red Pew Bibles, as we continue this World Changer series, based on the so-called Sermon on the Mount, which covers Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Last Sunday, we looked again at the importance of prayer in kingdom life and living, and we reflected on the the kind of asking and seeking and knocking of verses 7 to 12. And, And one of the conclusions that we came to regarding the good things that our how much more Father promises to give us when we ask is made clear from the parallel passage in, in, in Luke 11. And so the good thing that our how much more Father wants to give us when we ask, we, we, we came to the kind of conclusion, was the Holy Spirit. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children in this bit, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so we finished last week by encouraging one another to urgently and continually pray for to ask God for the Holy Spirit and for more of the Holy Spirit in our lives, recognizing That if we're going to live this life that Jesus has been talking about, if we're going to live this countercultural, upside down kingdom life where we love our enemies, where we pray for those who persecute us, where we forgive those who sin against us, etc., etc., that the only way to live according to the rule of God 
is to have the Spirit of God living within us, making us more and more like Jesus. As we keep in step with the Spirit, as we keep being filled by and with the Holy Spirit, and as we produce his fruit in our lives. Because without the Holy Spirit, this world-changing speech, the Sermon on the Mount, can seem like, to quote one writer, a distant, glistening, snowy peak, glorious, but quite unscalable. In other words, looks amazing, Jesus. Looks incredible, sounds amazing, sounds incredible, but you know something, see if this is down to me. See if I have to live this life in my own strength, relying on my own resources, then there's no chance. No chance. This is well out of reach. But the thing is, it's not down to us. We have been given, to quote the Apostle Peter later on in the New Testament, we have been given all we need to live this life and pursue godliness. That's what the Bible says. We've been given all we need to pursue this life and godliness. And so I believe Jesus here in Matthew 7, Luke 11, invites and urges us to ask for, seek after knock to get at more of the Holy Spirit in our lives and promises that when we do, we will receive, we will find, and the door will keep swinging open. A number of you uh, spoke to me after the service last week and shared how you hadn't seen or necessarily made that connection before between Matthew 7 and Luke 11. And therefore, some of you found it helpful. And then some of you followed that up during the week by sending me some more information and thoughts on it. Thank you for that. John McCormick was clearing out his attic. He's not here this morning, so I can talk about him. (laughs) But John was clearing out his attic, and he came across the world's greatest sermon, a book by Oswald Chambers. And as he flicked through it, he came to a chapter on this very issue, and he scanned it, and he emailed it to me. And I want to read you a short extract from it. If this wonderful sermon, as in Jesus' sermon, (laughs) just get that out there. If this wonderful sermon and its stupendous demands is to be increasingly translated into personal experience, what do we need, asks Oswald Chambers. It can only be met by the appropriate operation of the Holy Spirit. Is it par for the demands of the day we need? He is the spirit of power, 2 Timothy 1.7. Is it wisdom we lack? He is the spirit of wisdom, Isaiah 11.2. Do we long to be gracious? He is the spirit of grace, Hebrews 10.29. Is it purity we need? He is the spirit of holiness, Romans 1.4. Do we fail in the realm of prayer? He's the spirit of supplication, Zechariah 12.10. Are we in the grip of a critical spirit? He is the spirit of love. Whatever we need for holy living and fruitful service, the Holy Spirit will be that for the asking. Ponder the promise. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Then asks Chambers, what more can God give than himself? Then let us ask and keep asking. And so I hope and pray, if you were here last Sunday, 
that you've taken time this week to pray for, to ask for more of the Holy Spirit in your life. This morning, we, uh, we come to another fascinating part of this sermon. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. It's only two verses today. Now, that's not why I've just spent a bit of time developing last week, okay? <laughs> because I don't have enough to say on these two verses. I simply wanted to reinforce where we'd got to last week, given the reaction from last week. So let's uh, hear what Jesus says next. Shall we stand? Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Grab a seat. There is a, there is a very real sense in which the teaching part of the Sermon on the Mount is virtually over. And now Jesus turns to further and intense application of the sermon. And so at the end of this world-changing speech, we're now confronted by four contrasts. Scan down the rest of chapter 7 with me. Here's the four contrasts you come up against. There's the narrow and the wide gate. There are true and false prophets, and wrapped up in that is the whole idea of good and bad fruit. And then there are false and true disciples and wise and foolish builders. Now, we're going to deal with those last three contrasts uh, in the weeks leading up to Palm Sunday. But this morning, it's the narrow and wide gate, or the broad and narrow way. Now, I reckon that most of us here this morning are pretty familiar with this idea, this concept, this thought. At small group on Tuesday night, I was mentioning our text for this morning and Richard Greenwood, naming lots of people this morning, but in a good way. Uh, Richard Greenwood sent me a link to this picture that, uh, that hung just above his grandfather's fireplace near Ballymena. Uh, here's the whole picture. Now, it's incredibly detailed and it's really intriguing. Painted by a German artist, I think mid-1800s, called The Broad and Narrow Way, and it's based on these verses from Matthew 7. I realize it's really hard to see the detail. Let me show you the lower half of the picture. There it is. And there, let me, it's just blown up a little bit bigger. And then here's the kind of upper half of, of the picture. The broad road, it seems, leads to a dark and foreboding place. Graphic depiction of hell. And the narrow road leads to what seems to be like a golden city, a vivid portrayal of heaven. And so clearly this artist was communicating the idea that the broad road via the wide gate was populated and was the road of choice for those who were not Christians. Whereas the narrow road via the narrow gate was walked by those who were Christians. And so it's a kind of like sinner saved, lost found, heaven and hell division. And as a kid, Richard uh, confessed to finding the painting a little scary. But it's a very powerful and a, and a very challenging image. I'd love to be able to see all the writing. You, you maybe can notice that there's, there's lots of wee lines of writing. I'd love to investigate every aspect of the picture, but I, but I think as you look at it, you get the general, you grasp the general idea. Now, I don't want to, uh, to downplay 
or suggest that there isn't something very important communicated via this painting and via this understanding of the broad and narrow way. Coming to Christ is very much about choosing to walk a different path from the vast majority of people. It was 2,000 years ago, and it still is today. Our initial salvation and acknowledgement of Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life launches us out on a different trajectory. Reconnecting our relationship with God via Jesus at the cross takes us in a brand new direction. Which doesn't seem that popular. And it's a way that doesn't seem as crowded as the alternative road and direction which many, many people do opt for apart from God. And in terms of the implications for not just now, but for the future and all eternity, the Bible is very explicit that the journey we are on in this life will lead to a very specific destination in the next. Place with God, place without God. Heaven, hell. And so salvation and becoming a Christian implies and is a narrow way. But I'm not entirely sure these two verses and this specific teaching of Jesus or application of Jesus is exclusively, please hear me, is exclusively about salvation. About Christian, non-Christian. Or relates completely to heaven or hell. Let me explain. Because I can see by the look on some of your faces. There's a little nervousness of where I'm going with this. You see what we've got to bear in mind. And this is so important when we engage with God's enlightening word. What we've got to bear in mind is that context is essential. Lifting individual verses or sections out of their setting out of their overall context, is, as we know, unwise. It's fraught with difficulties. It's actually even dangerous, and people do it. And the teaching and the application that we're now entering into comes, please remember, comes as part of the sermon or the series of sermons that Jesus has been sharing with his disciples. Right at the beginning, Matthew 5, one tells us that, yes, people came, but Jesus started speaking this sermon to his disciples. He's primarily, if you want to say it, preaching to the choir. He's speaking into the lives of the called, the blessed, the salt of the earth, the light of the world, as we've been emphasizing throughout this series. Jesus' disciples were affirmed by him as true believers throughout the sermon. And so as he continues to teach, as he continues to speak into their lives, he gives further instructions regarding true kingdom living for kingdom dwellers. And so I want to suggest to you that whenever then Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate... This is not exclusively a salvation issue. This is also a discipleship issue. To quote Kendall on this, here Jesus poses a narrow gate with regard to believers. 
and their relationship to the kingdom of heaven, the theme of this sermon. Think about this, says Kendall. He is teaching his own disciples. Believers, yes, others are listening in, and by the time we get to the end of the sermon, we do hear that crowds were impressed at the teaching of Jesus. But Jesus is speaking this into his disciples' lives. In order to tease this out a little further, and, and, and it's, it's always important to kind of look at, okay, what does the rest of Scripture kind of teach us and tell us about this? Well, as we did last week, let's look at what the parallel passage in Luke says. And here's what you read in the parallel passage in Luke. I have it on the screen here. You don't need to change it. Here's what it says. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try and enter and will not be able. Make every effort. From the original of that, I understand that we get this word agonize. And if you have a King James Version or a New King James Version, that particular verse in Luke is, reads, strive to enter the narrow gate. <coughs> strive to enter the narrow gate. Now, as we all know and appreciate, or at least I hope we do, we do not strive or make every effort to be saved. Like if I was to stand up here and say, hey folks, make every effort to be saved, you would brand me a heretic and carry me out of here. Salvation is a gift. We are saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians 2. Being saved is about relying on what Christ has done, not on what we do. And so this entering through the narrow gate in the context of the Sermon on the Mount cannot be exclusively about salvation. It's about something more. It's about discipleship. It's about living the life. It's about pressing on and pressing in. It's about kingdom living in all its fullness. It's about going deeper. It's about embracing the way of life that Jesus has been inviting and encouraging his disciples to live. This upside down countercultural sermon on the Mount way of life. Listen, sisters, you are Christians. You are my disciples. But what I'm calling you to is total commitment and surrender. As a believer, make the choice to enter this narrow gate. Get on this narrow road that leads to life. Michael Eaton, writing from this perspective, observed, the appeal to enter the kingdom of heaven through the narrow gate is not an appeal to experience the first stage of salvation, new birth, repentance, or saving faith. It is an appeal that his disciples will press on into a rich experience of the power of God's kingdom in their lives. That's why we urgently and continually need to keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking to get more of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In order to live this life and become more and more like Jesus, which is a process. This is not about becoming a Christian and then, in a sense, pressing cruise control. Drifting through the Christian life. This is about responding to the call of Jesus to take up your cross. How does Jesus describe this? To take up your cross daily and follow him. 
This is about dying to self every single day of your life in order to live 100% for Jesus. This is not just about hearing the teaching of Jesus to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and forgive those who sin against you. It's not just about hearing it. It's about doing it. Don't become hearers of this. Only become doers. Keep doing. This is about working out your salvation. It's not about working for your salvation. It's about working your salvation out. Choice. This is about making every effort to add to your faith goodness. Make every effort. What have I done this week to make every effort to add to my faith goodness and the goodness knowledge and the knowledge self-control? This is about intentional discipleship 24-7. This is about living the life in the everyday. And not everybody's up for it. Not everyone's prepared for it. And maybe that's why Jesus knew that only a few would find that way. That it would, to borrow a phrase from Robert Frost, be the road less traveled. Now I recognize that there's a danger here. A potential danger that what I'm saying and what I'm suggesting is, David, are you saying that there are Christians and then there are kind of like real Christians? That there's some kind of like two-tier system? That some are better, that some are more advanced, that some are more genuine than others? That is not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm suggesting. And even as I say that, I hear echoes of Jesus at the beginning of the sermon. Do not judge. I am simply recognizing, and please take me up on this afterwards. Please engage with this. Please email me during the week. Don't leave the church, okay? That's the only thing I'm not allowed to do. Uh, But please do engage with me in this. I am simply recognizing that living this life, this kingdom life in all its fullness, is not a given. It's not the definite outcome for disciples of Jesus Christ. You can take your eyes off Jesus. You can get distracted. You can become complacent. You can become lukewarm. Like the believers in the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3. You can be a Christian and keep making poor choices. Like Demas. Right in the middle of God's activity in the early church with Paul and Luke. Spoken of so positively and in such positive light in Colossians 4 and Philemon. And yet later you discover according to Paul... Here's what he says, Demas, because he loved the world, has deserted me. You'll be a believer and make poor choices. Or what about Ananias and Sapphira, part of the early church, believers, but who opted for the easier road, for the broader road, and let the love of money take over? What about Saul? We've been looking at him on Sunday evenings. A man anointed by God, empowered by the Spirit. We've we've read that, we've discovered that. Who then, to quote his own words, I have acted like a fool and erred greatly. Saul, at some point, opted for the broader road. Now all of those people, and and along with uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I include Saul here, okay? All of those people were not, are not, lost, lost. I believe they were, are, saved. 
but they lost their way in this life. They veered off course. They didn't die to self daily and keep following. They chose the easier, broader path at a certain point that does lead to destruction. Now, not to eternal destruction, clearly not to hell if this is addressed to Christian disciples. But it does lead to the wrecking and the ruining of what might have been. To the loss of certain rewards. Saved, yes, but to quote 1 Corinthians 3, only as one escaping through the flames. It's a sobering part of scripture. I realize maybe raising lots of questions. But in its context, I do believe there is a real challenge here for Christians. To enter the narrow gate that leads to life in all its fullness. That as we have listened to this sermon on the mount now for four months. This world changing speech and we've considered its implications. There is a decision to make. There is a decision to take. Are we prepared to live like this? Are we prepared to walk the narrow way via the narrow gate? Are we willing to address anger in our lives? Lust. Are we willing to seek God's kingdom first and foremost, priority? Are we willing to pray for God's will to be done? To love enemies? To not worry about what we eat and drink and wear? That's our call. We're not on our own. We've got to keep asking for God the Holy Spirit to walk with us or for us to keep in step with him. But that's a choice. That's a choice. And this narrow road is not easy. And ultimately I believe and I've indicated it's, it's the way of the cross. And therefore it's, it's actually the way of submission where you surrender yourself to the authority and control of another. It's about the lordship of Christ in every single area of my life, every single area. That's a narrow road to walk. Where I'm not in charge. Where God is number one over every single area. Hobbies, pastimes, language, my money, all of that. It's the way of sacrifice. It's about offering ourselves, offering ourselves as living sacrifices. It's a choice. It's about daily dying to me, climbing back up on that altar, dying to self. It's as Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a person, he bids him come and die. It's the way of suffering. To somehow share in Christ's sufferings, as Paul talks about. Recognizing that suffering as a Christian and for Jesus produces character, produces hope in us. For some in our world, that suffering is physical, as they, right now they lie in a cell. 
or they're in hiding for their faith. But for a number of others, it takes on many different forms. This suffering includes ridicule and isolation and misunderstanding. And as Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. So this narrow road is the road of suffering. And as Jesus shared this sermon and this world-changing speech, he he knew, I, I believe Jesus knew that the path he was asking his disciples to walk was narrow. It was a tough call, but yet it was the way to life. It is the way to change the world. It is the way to turn things upside down. It is the way to challenge the norm. It is the way to challenge the comfortable. And so enter through the narrow gate. It's not just a call to salvation. It is that. But it's also a call to discipleship. It's a call to live the life that Jesus has been calling us to in this sermon. And I encourage you and I to accept the invitation. What I want to do this morning as we close... is is sing a great hymn, a hymn about the cross, a hymn that says, when I survey the wondrous cross in which the Prince of Glory died. And then it includes lines like, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt in all my pride, and forbid it, Lord. And then we sing lines like, all the vain things that charm me boast, I sacrifice them to his blood. I mean, these are not simple words to sing. For, for me, the, these are kind of like the words you sing when you're wanting to enter or go on the narrow path. Love so amazing, so divine, demands what? My soul, my life, my all. Few who find that way. Let's stand together as we close.